Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello there, and welcome to the Untitled Film Podcast with Callum and Johnny. I'm Johnny. And I'm Callum. And this week, we have a very special Christmas episode to listen to. Yes, this week we're doing alternative Christmas movies. So everybody has one of these. For most people, it's the safe choice, which is Die Hard. But this is the point when you've you've had enough of love, actually. You've had enough of the forced merriment and, and the jingle bells and, and the mince pies. And Batman smells. And Batman smells and Robin laid an egg. And you want films that are either a little bit more intelligent, maybe a bit darker, maybe just a bit more fun. You know, you don't have... You, you find yourself getting bored of the... Um, soundtracks with the ching 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 and Santa Claus or whoever and people hugging and learning and, and you want something that's a little bit darker a little bit more interesting something that you could watch any time of the year but for some reason you've adopted it as your Christmas film of choice yeah and this week we are actually suspending well it's not suspending a rule I suppose one is older and one is newer but we're not having a new new movie because well as, as far as my knowledge goes there's not any new new movies out this year that could be counted as maybe um, an alternative Christmas movie there is that film where David Harbour plays Santa Claus oh, but yeah. he beats people up but that's I still, still think that's quite Christmas in your face I it's think, a Christmas movie I think so not too. a film that I think the difference definition is there are movies that are about Christmassy things that are at Christmas which that is just yes but slightly things. more cheeky and then there are things that are just happen to be at Christmas so yes. like Die Hard there's a Christmas party it's at Christmas there's a little bit of people singing Jingle Bells or whatever in it, but it's not really like a Christmas movie. You wouldn't think that at least 50% of the theme is about Christmas. And I think that's the point. It's, it's something that you personally adopt rather than have something forced at you. It's a Christmas movie, mm. except this one, like Bad Santa or this new David Harbour film, is a bit cheekier, so you're going to like it. It's That's not the same thing. It might be a bit cheekier. It might be a bit funner. It might be a bit more violent even, but it's not quite the same thing because these are films that you pull close to your heart it, it's a different thing i would also possibly argue that there are some movies like dam busters or, or things that are kind of always shown at christmas even though there's nothing to do with christmas I and mean, even them would you know be borderline what we're talking about today but yes actually, I, I think so too both films we've talked about have got a mention of christmas here or there whether yes. it be in set design or seasonality or when they're or, set and yeah things like that so that is what today's episode will be about. Uh, very quick shout out to everyone to please like and subscribe to us on on Spotify, iTunes, whatever. Get that download done every week. And also while you're at it, why don't you go onto our Instagram and Facebook and follow us where we have lots of exciting social media things that we post on there that you can interact with us and we might mention your name on the podcast. Lots of fun to be had there. And that's Untitled Film Podcast, all one word, Facebook and Instagram. And Twitter, uh, who cares? Yeah, fuck that place. Fuck it, fuck it. 
But yeah, anyway. Um, so that is that this week. Then first main segment of our podcast that we usually like to have every week is the news and Callum. Do, 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 no. <laughs> no? No. Oh, so, you know what's funny? Uh, Emily Maitlis and John Soper must listen to us because they, they have a new podcast called News Agents. Um, and on said podcast, they started up a new thing where they, it was like a review of the year. And Emily Maitlis every time started singing the final countdown and John Sopel's not allowing her to do it anymore. <laughs> where is that familiar? Uh, well, exactly. Being shut down by my co-host. Being controlled by the one who making does the, the biggest work, it must mistake. Be said. I mean, his life. I mean, I am a contributor rather than the kind of main showrunner here. Yeah, if you say so. Anyway, um, so what is your first piece of news, Callum? Was what I was going to ask you before <laughs> you rudely interrupted my flow. And got all the fluff in the way. Well, there's an interesting adaptation of a book called Queer by the name of... Uh, by the name of... Uh, by the author William S. Burroughs. It's going to be directed by Luca Guadagnino. Uh, Gu- sorry, Guadagnino. It's a bit of a tough name. It's an Italian name. Um, He, if you're familiar at all, directed Call Me By Your Name and most recently the film that just came out, Bones and All, which has had pretty good reviews. I have to say I'm a bit agnostic on him. Uh, I saw Call Me By Your Name and I thought, I get why a lot of people are really adopting it. But mm, personally for me, it just, it was a three out of five. didn't quite settle for me. And the same with his remake of Suspiria. I, I admired it, but didn't really like it. But this is going to star Daniel Craig, and it's a very important text uh, for LGBT readers. It's one of quite early texts during during this sort of beat poetry when people were starting to get more fluid and open about that sort of thing. And it follows Daniel Craig's character as he follows someone who is discharged from a naval base that he takes a fancy to. And uh, I'm looking forward to it because I I like Daniel Craig's post-Bond run. He looks like he's just having a blast, not having to do those stunts anymore. And he seems to be entering his post-Bond character actor stage. And I'm looking for this looks like it's going to be another entry into that. And I'm looking forward to seeing what comes of it. No, interestingly enough, that was a piece of news that I nearly picked. Oh, really? I, I skimmed over it for a couple of others. Uh, one, because I thought it might start an interesting wider discussion. So, yeah, interesting, definitely something to look forward to. And I, too, am enjoying Daniel Craig at the moment. Yes, I still haven't seen Glass Onion because it's not out for another few days on Netflix. You I went saw, and saw it, it in during the Cineplex. very brief yeah. cine- cinema run. And, uh, yeah, you're going to like it. Good. Um, and so my first piece of news this week is that apparently Wonder Woman 3 is on hold at DC Studios. I heard that. Um, interesting news there. I wonder how much of it's to do with kind of James Gunn taking over, if it was something that was already in the offing. But so this is what I thought it might open up a wider discussion. What is going on with the DC Universe? So, other than that, other than that, James Gunn. I know that over. James Gunn, and it's not just James Gunn. I can't remember the name of the other guy. So it's yeah. him and one other person, and they seem to be cleaning house a bit. They they seem to be pick and choosing what what they like. Uh, so James Gunn. I almost mean this in a broader sense, though. So obviously, um, DC seems to have kind of split into two factions. So you've got the faction that is partly to do with the what should we call it the Schneiderverse, which Wonder Woman was kind of part of that. Yes. That the Batman involving. Um, uh, not the Batman, the movies 
starring Batman, involving Ben Affleck, um, the Henry Cavill Superman, that kind of branch. And then there was another kind of branch that kind of like had Shazam and then the second Suicide Squad, because the first Suicide Squad's kind of in the, the first bit. Then you've had Black Adam. I would argue the Joker and the new Batman, they seem to be more on that kind of... Even though they may not inhabit quite the same universe even, they kind of have the same feeling. And it's kind of branched off into these... And then obviously you've got the Peacemaker TV series from that, and it's kind of branched off into all these different things that don't really fit together anymore. I'm not sure if they really have a proper plan in place, or at least didn't. Now that we have James Gunn, it might Mm -hmm. be changing. But of course, changes take time just because you... They've only just been reinstated, these two guys, James and the other guy. So it's not going to be immediate until we no, see how their changes not. are. But it's funny, how are you with sh- spoiling Black Adam? Well, I haven't seen it, so I'd rather you didn't. Okay. And also, I don't think we should spoil it on the podcast Yeah, because there is something, because you mentioned about two branches, and there is something that if I spoil Black Adam, it kind of goes into a deeper, does but it start to connect back into a diff- yeah. to the Snyder branch? It does. Interesting. I kind of visually thought that might be the case, but then, but then what's going on with us? So I watched the Batman for the first time of the day. Yeah, I know, late to the party for someone who is on a film podcast, but finally got around to seeing it. And again, I couldn't quite see where that fit in the universe because at one point that movie was going to have Ben Affleck in. Yes. And then he obviously kind of like dropped. Well, at one point, Ben Affleck was going to direct it and he was. star in it. And then, but then he was just going to star in it. And then he wasn't going to star it anymore. And then it was this new thing. And then. And then, but there's a Joker in that as well. Oh, I mean, this is, yeah, I mean, this that's a spoiler, but there is a Joker, oh, he's not really in it, but it's not, really, it's not really that big a spoiler, is it? But there's like, there's a scene where it's hinted that there will be a Joker in the future. And it's like, but why don't you just, why didn't you just use the Joaquin Phoenix Joker? Like, I realise that you, maybe you don't care about having it as a connected, interconnecting universe, but clearly on some level they do, hence why they brought James Gunn and stuff in. It is a bit of a mess. And, and it's just like, well, what's been going on? And I realise, okay, they're cleaning house and stuff now, and they've brought people in to do that. But why did it get to this stage? And why did it get to... And, and ironically, the interesting parts of um, what they've done in recent years have been these kind of standalone movies. Oh, absolutely. The, the ones that kind of really well and connect into the universe and and some also some like the standalone animated projects like um uh what's harley that? quinn harley quinn has been great and then but and this is where they obviously do care about having interconnected universe the suicide squad and and suicide squad are both kind of connected together yes but they but then and then they're connected by the harley quinn movie yes which all, so, and they're all connected us to the Snyderverse. Yes, because there's a cameo from Ben Affleck in the exactly. first film. And then obviously the Joker is in the extended cut of the Snyder cut of, what's it called? Oh, of, um, um, Justice League. Yes, Justice League. But they don't feel tonally like they fit in with that. They tonally feel like they fit more in with the Batman and Shazam and that kind of thing. But... It almost seems like they care about individual projects and then occasionally go, oh, wouldn't it be fun if... But clearly watching The Batman, that is a movie that has been designed to set up a universe. Yes, their own thing, their own pocket thing. Yeah, I mean, we're not reviewing it today, but there are characters within that, but we are 
hint, hint, interviewing a Batman. Um, but there are characters in that 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 don't really fit in with the rest well, of like the... Like how the Penguin sort of doesn't have much to do, yeah, but it's only a way to set up his, his own his TV character. show. Yeah, his TV show, which is that he's also, I assume, going to be the, the new movie. The main bad guy by far in it is the Riddler. Um and then it's obviously setting up Arkham and the idea that there's people in Arkham and, and other things are mentioned. And, so, and it's just like, what are they doing? Like, surely <laughs> there would be some meeting. So, some consistency. Yeah, or at least like, okay, we're going to have the dark DC branch and we're going to have the main DC branch and the dark branch are going to be R-rated movies that have a $120 million budget and the other ones are going to have $200 million are going to be for the whole family. But then have the dark, but at least connect the Joker with the... The, like I, I don't envy James Gunn's job. He, he's really the, like swooped into. I, I can see the cogs in your brain kind of overpowering and steam pouring out of your well, ears because, like, as you're trying to connect the dots. If um, I had been in charge, this wouldn't have happened. Yeah, no, that's true. That probably is true. And let's be honest, Wonder Woman. Uh, 1984 is a bit boring, but Wonder Woman is not the issue with the. the oh, absolutely universe. not! It was actually one of the There's best few ones. bright yeah. spots in that part. So why is that the? And that, so I think that's going taking it back to the initial point before I went on this big rant. They can shit can Ben Affleck for all they like. Well, he has been shit can, doesn't he? I, well, I don't think they ever quite quit on him because I think he has a Didn't cameo. He quit on it though. I, he may have done. I think he has a cameo left in the Flash. Yeah. Um, so, th- yeah, how long's that been in the tank for? <laughs> well, quite. And how long with, will that ever see the light of day? With Ezra Miller on their crime spree. Yeah, um, hmm. yeah, it's all very problematic for um, DC. Yes, and I wish James Gunn luck because, from a comic book point of view, fuck Marvel, DC are the one. Um, yeah. I much prefer them. And when they do strike <laughs> at something, even if it doesn't quite work. It's certainly more interesting, and it actually feels like a movie. Mm-hmm. And let's be honest, like, obviously, the Kevin Feige and stuff have done an amazing job of digging deep and and opening the old, the cupboard of and turning unknown... something like Guardians of the Galaxy into yeah. a mega billion, or even Iron Man hit maker. Oh yeah, yeah. Like, who would have thought? I mean, Iron Man people knew who he was, but who would have thought Iron Man was going to spawn three movies that gross best part of three billion dollars? Figurehead, yeah. It's like, okay, yeah, people knew who Captain America was. And obviously everyone knew who Spider-Man was. But they didn't even have Spider-Man at the start, and they kind of don't now. So yeah. it's like, uh, yeah, you know, how, uh, fair play to them. They, they didn't have their big, probably their single biggest asset, and they managed to build a massive empire out of that. And DC, who had Batman and Superman, like the two heroes, the Cape Crusaders, and then throwing Wonder Woman and, 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 and stuff, and you've got like quite a big set of like big heroes and nada. <laughs> like they obviously made a bit of money out of it overall, probably, but for every movie they've made money on, they've had another absolute stinker that's lost a lot of money. Oh, for sure. So, yeah. And even films that made money, like this, the first Suicide Squad, they didn't want to repeat that. No. No, exactly. It's like, well, we made $700 million, but it was a steaming pile of shit. <laughs> um, yeah. So... DC, get your shit together. Yes, uh, that was very much like um, in Always Sunny when uh, Pepe Sylvia... Pepe Sylvia! Pepe Sylvia! <laughs> Never seen you get so worked up. Well, I just, I've been thinking about this since I watched The Batman, which has its problems, but is a reasonable enough movie. It's a movie, and first um, off, which is something. Yeah. But I, it's not, hit, not the place and time to rant about Marvel. Well, yeah. That's for another day. 
It is, but it is indeed. Anyway. <laughs> Should I do my second piece <laughs> yeah, of news? Yeah, you can do second piece of news. <laughs> so um, Mean Girls, the musical, is going to be set up at Paramount, and they've cast several of the lead roles. Uh, Angoria Rice from The Nice Guys. She was the da- Ryan Gosling's daughter in The Nice Guys. She's going to be playing the lead. And in supporting roles, we have Renee Rapp. Aluya Cravallo from Moana is going to be playing one of the characters. And Jackel Sp- Spivy is going to be rounding out that cast. And we are getting into a ridiculous sort of remaking the remake of the thing of the thing of the thing. Because, mm. of course, the movie led to the Broadway musical, which led to this second movie, based on the Broadway musical. And this is happening again with Matilda, which was an adaptation and then became a musical. And now we're getting the film of the musical. And it is starting to get a bit ridiculous. I'm a bit sick of it, if I'm being honest. Um, so I don't, to be honest, I couldn't really care that who, much about Mean Girls. I just wanted to kind of bring this up as a point for me to rant about my own thing. You know, who, you know, who wants new ideas? Well, who wants something original? Clearly. Like, like I've just started watching Wednesday on Netflix. It's perfectly good, but there's nothing wrong with it. It's probably one of the best things Tim Burton's done for a while from the couple of episodes I've seen. But... Did it need to be remade? How many versions of the Adams Family are there? We are really just digging into just IP graves, yeah. pulling out what we can. Like, oh, Banana Man. Let's make a film of Banana Man. What happened to, you know, original ideas? And and some of these things are so... Like, obviously, the Adams Family is the Adams Family. You know, they, they've made loads of them and they always make money. But, and people, you know, young girls like, Wednesday Adams and stuff. It's but, very much the kind of goth chic, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, I understand why they've done that. But some of the stuff that they dig out of these old, like... <sighs> Get the dust off. Oh, yeah. There was, we've got this thing in the cupboard. And people are like, what's that? Never heard of it. And, like, the amount of things that are, are, are nothing... People have just dug them out of a cupboard and gone, that's a piece of IP. Well, that'll do. You might as well have just had an original idea. Well, at it's that not, point, not, There's exactly. no built-in, like... Built-in audience. Unless you've got something, you know, really amazing to say. I mean, I know it's not digging out an old piece of IP, but I feel like the Emoji movie is the perfect example of this. Oh, we have some IP. It's emojis. <laughs> let's make a movie out of it. Yeah, because that's a good idea. Unless you can... And then let's get James Corden, the world's least popular human being, that somehow people liked for about a week. And we'll put him as the main character, James fucking Corden. Fuck that guy. Yeah, it is It is getting really, really ridiculous. Unless you can do something funny and, and ironic with it, like the Lego movie, then, you know, yeah, I mean, that's getting good. to a point like, what's the point? And even that wasn't a guarantee. They just happened to hire two directors who had had a previous hit. Mm. And I, I imagine the studio just went, here's a bunch of money. You've done, you know, you've made a film, uh, successful studio films. Bring it on time, bring it on budget and do whatever you want. In and fair, they did do whatever they want. In fairness to the Lego movie, what I liked about it was it is stop motion using Lego. And I thought that's an interesting use of... Well, it's not actually stop motion. Some of it is. No, no, it's, it's CGI really? made to look like stop See, motion. See, I Googled this at the time because I assumed it was that. And there was, I saw like bits of the making bits of it with actual Lego. It might be because there are scenes... Towards the end, of course, I mean, spoilers for yeah, the Lego yeah, movie with her. But yeah, when they're cutting between Ferrell. the two. But I still think I saw them actually doing it on some scenes. Maybe the little tiny me. bit during those scenes when hands are Obviously, kind of there's, there's in. a lot of CGI in those, even if not all of it is stop right there's you know, a big chunk of it was always gonna be a bit. But anyway, it works as a concept that, you know, even if you're And it is getting to the stage now where even for very smart directors, it seems that they can't graduate from making indie movies to their own personal mm. studio films until they've 
done a big Things studio film. Must through the factory, yeah. Exactly. So Taika Waititi has to make a few Thors before he can make a $30 million thing like um, Jojo Rabbit. Mm. Oh, and uh, Ryan Johnson can't make uh, his his films without making kind of one of the more interesting Star Wars movies. And et cetera, I mean, et cetera, et cetera. That's, that's the wrong thing you've just said, but <laughs> the worst of the new Star Wars movies, yeah. Well, worse than Rise of Skywalker. Mm, good question. I it really dislike is. Them both. It's, it's fine to dislike it, but it's certainly more interesting. I didn't say good, I said okay, interesting. Okay, I'll let you have interesting. Yeah, because Rise of Skywalker is basically fan art of exactly. fan fiction. But <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but I'm not a particularly smart fan. Well, quite. Anyway, I feel, again, once again, again we are drifting off topic. topic. Yes. I, so I'm going to lift this joke that I'm going to do to announce this piece of news right off of Empire because I like the joke. So... Credit to Empire here. It's her. Hi. She's the director. It's her. <laughs> Do you know what I could be referring to? But Taylor Swift going into directing. She is. Taylor Swift is going to direct her feature her, her feature debut. And it will be for Fox Searchlight Pictures. Well, they are they still Fox Searchlight? Anyway, Searchlight. It's a Searchlight. I just assume it's Fox Searchlight because that's what it used to be. So it will be an indie project of some some variety. Um they haven't announced what yet, though. No plot or potential casting details have been released just yet. Just that it's based on an original script, also written by her, and that she's going to direct it. It could be potentially good. I mean, she is, of course, very talented. Uh, very talented. You know, her last four albums have all been sort of mega smash critical and audience darlings. But, of course, you never know when people decide, uh, an actor decides to go into directing for every... Uh, Kevin Costner or Ben Affleck, you get someone who isn't that. And for every um, singer who decides that they're going to do X, Y, and Z, other artistic thing, there are some who are really good. Yeah, and there are some around. who are really poor. Uh, so, you know, it's, that's potentially very interesting. On another note, though, the two movies she's been in previously are Amsterdam by David O. Russell and Cats by Tom Hooper, <laughs> uh, both of which obviously did really well at the box office and oh, people yes. talk about Smash them hit. really positively. But let's hope Swift's own project can shape it can shuffle up the sponge line. <laughs> tisk tisk. Let's hope that Swift's own project can shake the reputation off. Get it? Shake. Oh, this is it awful. Off. Shake uh, it off. Get it? This is also stolen from Empire. This is where journalism comes to die. <laughs> and they say journal- um, print journalism is dead. Well, well, this isn't print, is it? No, it's not. So maybe we refer. Well, it could also be. I've in the stolen magazine. it from print journalism. If you call the internet print, which I no, I wouldn't. It's digital, unless it's also. It could be both. If it's expensive, it's a magazine or not. I suppose. Yeah. Anyway, on that very truncated bombshell, um, I think we should go into talking about movies. Yes. So we've decided to go in movie order. Um, Do you mean release order? Release order. Yeah, what movie release is what I was going to oh, say. Oh, I see, yes. Um, because neither film are particularly new. Um, so I will go first with my movie. Absolutely, go for it. Which, if you hadn't, we, I don't know if we said this actually, we've each picked a movie. Yes. Um, so my movie is Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence, starring David Bowie and Richie, I'm going to say this name wrong, I'm sure, but Richie Yamamoto, who is a, um, a Japanese musician. Um, 
by trade, pianist, uh, who also wrote the score for the movie. Uh, and it's kind of like casting and direction and money and everything. It's kind of like a co-production between British production companies and um, and Japanese production companies. But the main reason I love it is Mr. David Bowie. Bowie, 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 Let's Bowie. the whole thing exactly. off. I'm still, like, I'm one of his biggest fans in the history of the world. I still am not sure because i'm swear i've seen him in an interview saying it's david bowie no bowie but his son was called zowie so zowie bowie so if yeah i i say anyway i still can't i'm still not convinced i know which way to say it's correct i think it's bowie but i don't know anyway (laughs) for the sake of consistency i think let's stick with that bowie I'm sure I'll change anyway. Um, So, Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence is about a POW camp in the Second World War in Indonesia, I believe. Um, Although which country it's in isn't necessarily the most important part of the story. I believe it's in Java. Um, Anyway, and uh, David Bowie, his cap, uh, he's a major. Uh, He's not called Major David Bowie, but I can't remember what he's called. Very good journalism here. I could certainly get up IMDb. Oh, don't worry about it. I don't think it really matters. Uh, and he is arrested and hauled up in front of a trial. And in said trial, they say that the crimes that he has committed should sentence him to death. But they're going to have a little think about it. So in the meantime, they put him in an internment camp where he meets Mr. Lawrence along with Richie Yamamoto's, um, I don't know, he's not a guard. What would you call it? What's the head of a, a camp? Sort of like a general or, or a, um, like the, the person who li- runs it anyway. Yeah, like I, I, who's called, I believe, Ayoko, Ayoko. And he is, again, I'm, I'm not very good with names, hence why I'm calling David Bowie's character, David Bowie's character and things. <laughs> and uh, he... Um, he befriends some people, he annoys some people, and he is in this camp until what happens to him happens to him. And that is what we'll, I'll go with for the description at this point, not to give too much away. Well, I think in a way that's quite good. Yeah. Uh, so what did you think, Callum? Well, it, honestly, it took me a little bit to get into it, like the first 20 minutes, because there's something about the production which I found a little bit stiff and almost stagey. I did wonder for a while if it was based on a stage play because it seemed to have all the trappings. Um, Very, you know, scenes happening in rooms, long conversations. And for a little bit, I was, there was something about it that that I wasn't quite settling into it. I I could admire the acting. David Bowie had a sort of... um, Bowie. 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 uh, Had a movie star, has a movie, had a movie star charisma. Um, and even though this is one of his earliest roles, he had been on Broadway at this point. He'd been in The Elephant Man, and which that's actually what got him the part. And he was also in The Man Who Fell to Earth. But at the moment, he, he was still kind of quite new to acting. And, but he has an instant magnetism. And I could admire that. Tom Conti, as Mr. Lawrence, has a very... He's excellent. He's excellent. He has a very world-weary sort of thing to him. But there was something about the stiffness in in the production and the editing was quite long. 
Um, it had very long takes, and perhaps it's just something I'm not used to. But for a little bit, I wasn't really settling into it. But then the drama started to get to me, and I started to really care what was happening in these um, relationships between both the Japanese characters and the English characters, and how they spoke to each other, and how each individuals had their their own set of rules and and. Um, guidelines and how they behave around one another. The the interplay of all these different people really started to come alive, and I really started to get soaked in to the drama of it all. And I think it's one of those films. Actually, I think that's going to be something because we haven't said what the second movie is. There's going to be uh, some some uh, crossover because in terms of production, both have a little bit of. I guess awkwardness is the best word. Interesting enough, that's what I thought when I was watching the other movie yes. we talk about as well. There's a little bit of an awkwardness to the staging and to the editing and everything about it, and just a little bit, it doesn't quite click. But then with this film, I thought by the last kind of hour to 40 minutes, it, I was completely engrossed. And because both of these movies are old, we can spoil them. As it goes into the childhoods of uh, both Mr. Lawrence and David Bowie's character... Um, I think we've already broken that rule where Bowie, Bowie. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Uh, think, yeah. Up until the point where you see flashbacks of uh, David Bowie's story and why he is the way he is, because he's sort of a rule breaker. He's an agitator. He's uh, he's belligerent. So wh- when he's in this camp, uh, this POW camp, he absolutely does not follow the rules. And he takes every chance, almost with a teenager sort of gleefulness to him. Mm. And you, for a while you think, that's Guy's a bit of a knob, actually. I mean, I, he, I get it, but... Um, I mean, I think if I was in an internment camp and the people were being particularly nasty to me, I think I would you, maybe struggle to bite my tongue, but there you well, go. Well, quite. Um, but then it goes back into his into his story, into his background, and you see why. He, he literally ran from his school years um, where he did something quite shameful that he's embarrassed about, and he's trying to kind of make up for this thing. So he still has, even though he's a man uh, who's fought in the war for several years now, he has this childlike energy to him because that's sort of where his life stopped developing in terms of how it would usually go before war completely interrupted that. And because of this moment of shame, and even though we can spoil it, I don't want to spoil it too much because I'd like people to see it. And by that point, I was completely engrossed and anything that that was stiff or awkward about the production, uh, you know, all had been forgiven. It's, uh, I think with both films, but certainly with this one, it's a case of wow them in the end and you got a hit. Um, and that's, it really did. It really, really won me over. And I'm ex- expecting that because this is your personal movie, that's very much true for you. Yeah, um, I I think I love it. I think uh, David Barry in it's amazing. Tom Conti in it's amazing. Um, Michi Sakamoto in it is amazing. Um, yeah, uh, you know, I think it it, it really... Uh, uh, yeah, it, it works very well. It tells a very difficult story and a very difficult thing. You know, um, internment camps were not great. Let's be honest. <laughs> um, or, or is it? Yeah, or, or prisoner or POW camps were not great. Particularly ones ones run by the Japanese in Southeast Asia. Um, I've been to the Death Railway in Burma, and I've seen what happened to a lot of the POWs there. So, yeah, not a great situation. And I think it brought a real level of humanity to it. I think it brought humanity to the the prisoners, but also the guards, you know, and that's something difficult that um, that Richie Sakamoto does really well. Um, he, yeah, he he manages to um, uh, 
what's the word I'm looking for? He manages to um, really uh, encompass like the fragility of humanity and why people may do evil things. You know, or, you know what are their reasons? And and also, it, I think it does a good job of you know talking about the you know. I, I, I don't want to get too much into how different cultures operate, but I think um, uh, Western cultures tend to be more individualist, whereas um, uh, Asian, and again, it's different country to country, but particularly Japan and and, and China and some Asian countries tend to be more, uh, or I should say South Asian and Southeast Asian and things, but tend to be more collectivist as, a, as countries. Um, and yeah, and I think it kind of explores that quite interestingly um, and things which, you know, is is interesting to see. But I do think it has problems. Uh, I think for me, one of the biggest issues is the editing. I think it's almost quite disorientating. Um, so... Let me give a really good example. I think that it... So one thing, actually, about the film is it, the proper version, there are two versions, but the proper version doesn't have subtitles. So obviously there's a lot of characters speaking Japanese, a lot of the film. Um, and the idea is if... Uh, and vice versa. So the idea is if you're Japanese and you're watching it, you don't really know what's going on with the Brits. Uh, you know, you, you might do if you can speak two languages, but a lot of people would watch it and go, what are they doing? What are they... What are their plans? What are they thinking? And kind of like feeling it around. And it's the same, it's the reverse for, you know, if you're watching it from a uh, from an English-speaking point of view, you're watching it and going, what are they saying? What are, you know, what are, they, what are their plans? What's going to happen to these people? Have they just sentenced them to death? Have they just said, well, let them off this? You know, what, what's been going on? So you, you, it's, it's disorientating. But then I think when you add that with... There's sometimes quite big jumps in the story. And again, I don't like things that spoon feed you stuff. But it kind of like, you'll, you'll, you'll have a scene where someone's getting told off and then it'll kind of cut and then someone else is going to go in and stab someone. And you're like, oh, how do these kind of connect? And then as it starts to go and you're like, oh, okay, they're being punished. And that stabbing's nothing to do with the punishment. But it, yeah, <laughs> you know, it kind of maybe doesn't doesn't kind of feel like it lines up that well. And I think... If you didn't have this disorientation of the language, maybe you would notice it, but it's like double levels of disorientation. So I think that is my my biggest kind of downside of it is it can be quite disorientating um, if you don't speak both English and Japanese. Uh, but other than that, I think, yeah, I, think I really like it. I actually kind of, I know what you mean by kind of feeling stagey and that it kind of almost feels like they've used this set for quite a while, they've used this set for quite a while. They don't exactly move the cameras around in many interesting ways or anything. But actually, I would like to say the lighting, I think, in some scenes is fantastic. Um, there's some scenes at night in the kind of bunkhouses and things where you've got red lights from one direction and blue lights from another, and, and that all works really Agreed. well. Um, and the other thing I would say is the set design is fantastic. I was reading about it, actually, and apparently they built... So it was it was filmed on um, Rarotonga, which is a little Polynesian island. Um, and... Uh, when they built the set on there, apparently they built a whole POW camp and they only used like 30 or 40% of it when they were filming. And David Bowie's kind of saying, you're using it, it's such a waste. You're only shooting these tight corners. And then when he saw the film, he's like, oh, I get it. I think, um, yeah, production-wise, there are a few minor flaws, like you mentioned the editing, I mentioned some of the staginess. I think um, some of the more impressive cinematography comes later on at night because at the first 
again, it's all in the first kind of 20, 30 minutes where I wasn't quite sure about it. Um, it, It's daytime sets. And the thing about shooting a film in daytime is even with the best equipment in the world, it can sometimes um, look slightly televisual Mm. if if there's not much going on. And I did find myself thinking... Is this a TV movie, like a really well-respected TV movie, like Roots? Or you know, because in the early to mid '80s, that's when television was starting to take its first stabs at being taken seriously, and you got things like Roots and other TV miniseries and TV movies. And for the first twenty minutes, I thought, "Had I got this wrong? Is this a TV movie?" But as it went along, I could see that firstly how huge that set was, and and uh, the breadth of the production design and the cinematography and the fact that they get performers of this quality you know David Bowie's not signing up for a TV movie Tom Conti's not signing up at least not at this point mm. for a TV movie also I want to make a special mention to a performer we haven't mentioned yet who is now a cult figure but at the time I think yeah. was just sort of a straight actor he now goes by the name Beat Takeshi and he's sort of a you know director writer of B movies and, and he stars in B movies but at the time, he was sort of more of a jobbing character actor. And at the time, just went by the name Takeshi. And for a while, I was thinking, is that? No. I couldn't quite recognize him. Is that Beat? Throughout the whole film, I was like, I recognize him. His name's just Takeshi. Is that Beat Takeshi? The star and director of Violent Cop and the Violent Cop franchise. And Takeshi's Castle. And Takeshi's Castle. Is that? Bloody hell, it is Beat Takeshi. And that was that was a nice thing. I like Beat Takeshi. And, and he does... Say the immortal words, Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence. And he's uh, very good in it. He probably is an early example of the humanity of the guards because he has somewhat of a friendship with Mr. Lawrence, even though he still has to be an enforcer. And at times he does a lot of the abuse with the nightstick Mm. and breaks things and and bodies. But he has this kind of, you know, he he wakes him up at night and they have a bit of a chat uh, several times. and, And they they have so he is a sort of early example of that sort of fine line. So mm. he he might be the best example because the the other guy is so so rigid up until because we know that he must eventually break down. And of course, I don't want to spoil it too much, but there is a there is a reason why this ending is iconic. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the, there's something else that I found was quite an interesting interesting tidbit is that so the director was Japanese, Nagishi Oshima, I believe is how you say his name. Um, and he um, apparently didn't give a huge amount of direction to the British actors and gave like really in-depth um, direction to the Japanese actors. And I, again, I think what he wanted to do was highlight the kind of differences in how he basically would say to the, the, the you know, Tom Conti and Bowie and stuff, do what you would do. What would you think you would do in this scenario? How do you think you'd act? How do you think, you know... And, and wanted them to do that, whereas, because he maybe, or he didn't think that from a, you know, he would be able to, to give them the right stage directions uh, to act in the way that I think somebody that would act in that scenario and vice versa, which I thought was quite a nice touch as well. Um, the other thing that neither of us really have talked about in detail yet is the amazing soundtrack. Yes. Um, so again, as I said, uh, Richie Samomoto, um, he um, composed and wrote the majority of the, the score for it, as well as acting as one of the, the lead actors. Um, and yeah, it's absolutely amazing. And there's, if you don't know it, um, and I suspect a lot of you probably don't, there is an iconic song from it by him, which is Merry Christmas to Lawrence. And I think the chances are, if you haven't seen the film, you will have heard that song before. Um, if I give you, in fact, I was talking to 
tweet about someone the other day and they said they hadn't heard it and I went do 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 and they went oh yeah I know that song so it's been in loads of things over the years but that's this is the film that that song is from and it's the kind of the main theme song and stuff for it um and yeah I think it it, do you know the film it kind of reminds me of the most, which in some ways is a better movie, but I still really enjoy them both, is um, The Killing Fields. It's got that kind of, it feels very similar, similar kind of time production. I believe they both came out in the same year. Uh, yeah, it doesn't surprise me. They've got that, they feel very similar. And they've both got quite uh, interesting soundtracks by interesting people. Of course, it was um, uh, Mike Oldfield, uh, who did Tubular Bells, did the soundtrack for The Killing Fields. Um, both about quite, you know, <laughs> quite incredibly dark, horrible kind of bits of history, and both doing it in quite a, you know, subtle human way. Um, so yeah, no, I think that they they kind of there's a big overlap between those two as well um, in my head, and, and they're both films that I really enjoy and seek and see fondly. Although I don't see the Killing Fields as a Christmas movie. No, not at all. <laughs> Whereas this is. <laughs> Please more, do not so. watch the Killing Fields this Christmas. No, my advice is watch it in Jan. Well, maybe no, no, maybe watch it in February. Yes, or when spring appears and you're feeling in a better mood. Um, yeah. So, what's your sum up of the movie? I thought it was, um, after a while, after it took me um, a little while to get into it, and after I began to forgive some of the more, basically nitpicking, really, um, get over those nitpicks, I I thought it was excellent. Very human, war movie, very character-based. Gave David Bowie one of his first star-making performances. He's a star man! See, he criticizes me when i sing <laughs> but anyway anyway sour grapes um uh, very well acted and um very very interesting human drama and i completely understand why someone would make this their christmas film despite its darkness yeah i think in a lot of ways it's it, there is a level of upliftingness and hope at the end yes, very maybe, human, because very, it is human i yeah. think and that's it and even though people as a whole do bad things uh, humans maybe individually and for the most part aren't bad things and i think it shows that quite well yes um, no i agree i think again yeah it's 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 a little bit flawed and some of it's the time of, you know if you look back at early 80s movies a lot of them were a bit disjointed felt i, I, I don't i don't want to say all movies because there was definitely some out there that did but the majority i don't think they quite had the level of storytelling that people got rolling with in the mid 90s onwards and they didn't you know they, they were a bit rough around the edges and um, weren't as slick and I think that's where some of it comes from but no it is a great movie well we'll give it a score later but it's pretty good <laughs> um, and on to our second movie what have you picked for us Callum well this is my personal oh actually we should stop for an advert break okay yeah um, so we're now back from that little nice break there and Callum what did you pick as your movie of the well, Christmas like yours, this is a very personal movie. It's, as with alternative Christmas movies, they're sort of adopted choices. And mine would be Tim Burton's Batman Returns, the sequel to his Batman film, which at the time in 1989 was the most successful film of all time. So, of course, it was a no-brainer for Warner Brothers to give Tim Burton all of the money in the world to make his second film but with the difference because the first film he was slightly pushed in a certain direction make this film make it this way because he wasn't yet 
Tim Burton as we know him. This, however, was after he'd made Batman, won all that money, and then made his personal uh, film, Edward Scissorhands. So he was not only given all the money, but he was given complete creative freedom. And after the film came out, Warner Brothers went, oh dear, what have we done? So the, the plot is Batman's. I feel like this work. is a, a theory theme with you. Sorry, you like movies where studios have lost a lot of money. Oh, absolutely. Oh no, I don't think they lost loads of money. It was still a big hit. Yeah, it was a big hit. But, but they're it, like, what have you done? Exactly. Like, I, I absolutely <laughs> love. I love this sort of um, the contrast between control and scrappiness, and, and uh, director getting to bust their way through the wall. And this very much is that case. And it's a Batman film where the director has very little interest in the title character. Instead, it concerns the Penguin. It it, uh, chronicles his birth. He's uh, got a hideous deformity, very similar to things like Freaks and The Elephant Man, clearly big influences on Burton. He's dumped into the sewer by by his parents, and 30 years later, he re-emerges and gets the help of the the major capitalist who isn't Bruce Wayne in Gotham. So this is kind of the anti-Bruce Wayne, a guy called Max Schreck, named after the actor that played Nosferatu, very Tim Burton choice, um, to help him re-emerge and eventually to get a mayoral campaign going. At the same time, uh, Catwoman, who at the time is Selina Kyle, is a lowly secretary. She's been changed from in the comics. She was a sort of a cat burglar type. And in this, she's a lower middle class, hates her job, but puts up with the abuse. And she also has a very linking to Max Trek in that she works directly for him. And after she is caught in his office, breaking into his personal files, he try, attempts to kill her. And that is the spurring... Um, desire to become Catwoman comes from that. And Batman? Who cares? Tim Burton certainly doesn't. I mean, how many bad guys does Tim Burton put in this movie? Well, four. No, three. Three, sorry. Uh, So there's Max Shrek, who is not a comic character. It's a completely new creation. And Penguin and Catwoman. And Batman is just sort of there. I'd love to know how much actual time that Batman is on screen for. I think he's in... For a two-hour movie, I think he's gets about 30 minutes yeah, of screen time. I was going to say, roughly. I mean, if he's in the high 20s, that yeah. would surprise me. Yeah. Um, and I love this movie for several reasons, and I am acknowledging its flaws, but I don't want to just kind of steamroll in and kind of uh, just talk for 30 minutes. So can you please kind of give me your thoughts first before I sort of talk about what I dislike and what I like, because there are things I dislike. Yeah, it's all right. <laughs> always do this (laughs) (laughs) um it is a complete and utter mess a complete and utter mess but quite likable i i like all the individual performances i'm not quite sure every performance is in the same movie (laughs) um i love what danny devito is doing but i also have no idea what danny devito is doing um he so danny i don't think he actually said this danny devito plays the penguin and it's it's a bit of a mess like the penguin story's a mess. The penguins kind of what's the word I'm looking for? The penguins like um uh kind of modus operandi is a bit of a mess. At first he does at first he's uh, it switches about out three his, or four times, isn't it? Yeah. He's trying to work out what his it, what, why his parents threw him away and find his parents, and then it's 
he wants Gotham to love him, and then he thinks he can be mayor, and then he kind of goes back to when he realizes he can't. <laughs> on the two minutes Batman's on screen, he spoils their plan, and they end up kind of everything falling apart. And then, yeah, I don't really know what his is. I, I, what I the one person that I, I thought had a really kind of clear understanding of their role was Max what, Shrek. Max Shrek, because. So he's played by Christopher Walken. I am Max Shrek, and I only care about my son. I want to leave my, my business son, empire Jeff, to I my son, I want to give him the, my, my power industry. I want to give him that. So his kind of only motivation is his son, which kind of actually works for him because there is a scene towards the end of the film when Danny DeVito's character, after he switched the seventh time, his kind of modus operandi to um, going to be taking all the firstborns in Gotham and throwing them into the sewers out of petty vengeance, I think. Um, he, ha- he Max Shrek gives himself up for his son's life because his son's his firstborn. Um, uh, Catwoman, I think Shahurst makes sense. Actually, her character makes sense. And Michelle Pfeiffer, I think, does a good job of... It almost feels like it could be two people. You can believe that... You know, I mean, one of the big problems with Batman is always like, well, that's Bruce Wayne. Everyone knows that's Bruce Wayne. Just, even from just his mouth, you could tell a million miles off that's Bruce Wayne. But actually, I think Michelle Pfeiffer does a very good job of feeling like two very different people when she's the cat and when she's Selina. Um, so I think she does a good job. Um, and But yeah, it just doesn't really work. Everyone in Gotham's a bit of a set set around you know just to some people to run around some giant rubber ducks why has the penguin got loads of clowns working for him that's the joker's thing and but then the and also why is there lots of penguins there and it also it feels like obviously tim burton's gone i've got 120 million dollars or whatever ridiculous amount of money they gave him what i want but then he's also gone well actually for what i want to do i need 600 million dollars so i know we're just making aquarium look like the penguin's lair and then there's penguins already there and then we'll have, but we can't afford giant penguins. So for the giant penguins, we'll just have people in suits. <laughs> yeah. Really badly walking. That scene when, so, I mean, shocker, the bad guy dies. When they put penguin, when penguin has died at the end, these just four emperor penguins come out. But they're not emperor penguins, they're people in suits. They just move his body into the water. And the way that happens is, is very strange. Um, but overall, it's quite likeable. I kind of like all the bad guys don't really care that much about Batman. I mean, I could be made to care about Batman, but let's be honest, most superhero movies, when they're good ones, hint, hint, Marvel, the bad guy is good and the bad guy is interesting and is the best bit of the movie. So from that point of view, it works. Um, I love the set design. I think it's beautiful. The Danny Elfman score got my nerves. It felt like I was watching Nightmare Before Christmas. Um, I'm not going to lie. It just is a bit too over the top and Very bombastic. Yeah, it's a bit too much. Um, But... And and it doesn't like from a story point of view, it doesn't work. Like none of the motives really work. It, something will happen. Like so, most of it it starts off. I couldn't really tell you what happened. <laughs> they, the Max Streck wants a bit more power, so he decides he's going to an election. And for some reason, he thinks the Penguin's going to be the person to to win the election. Um, and then he, after like one campaign speech batman changes the speech pattern to say something bad which i think people already kind of realized about the penguin character and also the penguin character is literally the most grotesque 
depiction of anything you've ever seen in your life. Like, very sexual harassy, like, ridiculously sexual harassy. The way he eats, like, fish, just raw fish in front of, like, he's in front of all his campaign staff who are happily clapping, and he's just, like, rubbing raw fish on his face. Like, green keeps coming out of him. So I don't really kind of see how he's electable anyway. Having said that, Donald Trump did win an election, <laughs> and he kind of ticks all those boxes. I, apart from me, I don't think I've seen green coming out of Donald Trump. but Not as far as we know. No, but I have seen him throwing Big Macs into his mouth, and I haven't seen him sexually harassing, but there's enough people who've told me he sexually harasses. I'm fairly convinced he sexually harasses. So maybe there is something to it. Um, but yeah, just like my little review there, a mess, but an enjoyable mess. So I want to be upfront about the flaws as well, because um, it's, as we have mentioned, we're not interested in Batman. Tim Burton's not interested in Batman. I don't think he's ever been interested in Batman. But something, a bigger takeaway I get from this, is I don't think Tim Burton, at least at this point, before he was the super mega, 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 super rich director, at this point he was only semi-super rich, I don't think he's that trustful of, of the character of Batman. I think he sees him as a well-meaning goody goody who isn't actually all that effectual because even when he does get involved in in the action he doesn't actually solve anything <laughs> i mean the, the yeah, baddies die greatest detective. Yeah, world's greatest detective. although actually the, the, the irony the links between the batman and batman returns that i saw <laughs> oh, I, I did want to sort of get to that and um so but what it means is this film is a mood piece rather than a super tight structured plot which it clearly isn't and the mood is all around the Penguin and Catwoman. That's where Tim Burton's interest yeah, lies. Yeah, basically, the, the mood is... What Tim Burton wanted to make was... A Catwoman-Penguin movie. Well, no, I wasn't even going to say that. What Tim Burton wanted to make was Big Fish. Well, I think what he wanted to make was <laughs> a... So there's... Um, the, the influences here are The Elephant Man, mm-hmm. Todd Browning's Freaks, Frankenstein, Bride of Frankenstein in Catwoman. He wants to make a 1930s monster movie, yeah, yeah. but no one gave him that money. No. But they, and he sort of thinks, well, I've been given full creative control to make whatever I want. I may as well make my universal monster film with this thing and just make whatever I want. So it means that the first 40 minutes have some of the best work in Tim Burton's career because that's where a lot of the preamble of Catwoman and Penguin are setting up their motivations. And it's a very angry piece. I mean, uh, because he's quite distrustful. Yeah, the downtrodden kind of. Yeah, exactly. Because he's distrustful of the super rich, both in Shrek, who is actively evil, and in Bruce Wayne, who is attempting to do good, but is completely ineffectual and benign. And so when you take the film away from Batman, who is a rooftop dweller, you know, he swoops down from the rooftops, you take it to the street level and you see just how poor the lives of the citizens of Gotham actually are. And it, in that, in those uh, first 40 minutes, there's some beauty in that. And I, I love those scenes. I, and there's anger in both um, Michelle Pfeiffer's performance and Danny DeVito's performance. You can hear Dan, Danny DeVito just growling you know, uh, at, at random moments. I, mean, I know he's meant to be a penguin, but it is and, very animalistic. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's very primal, They're, both of their performances. Even when <laughs> Selena Kyle, it, it, she's not yet Catwoman, um, you know, there's a moment when she gets the taser for the first time, which will be included in her Catwoman weaponry. And she, her face just turns into a snarl and she shocks the already unconscious bad guy. And then she 
goes back to Selena Kyle, go, oh, sorry, didn't mean to do that kind of thing. But you, th- there's real beauty in that first 40 minutes. And then skip to 80 minutes. There's some real beauty in those last 40 minutes, pretty much as soon as the mayoral election plot is stopped, mm-hmm. which stopped at about the hour, maybe hour 10 mark. Because, again, Tim Burton's not that interested it's in it. It's a bit longer than that, I think. But, yeah, but, but it's, it, it's very abrupt. Yeah, but. exactly, exactly. They, he wants rid of it. Yes. And in that, the kind of pretty much as soon as Batman, the climax starts, as soon as Batman foils the plan to um, uh, kidnap the, Go- the babies of Gotham and drown them, there's some great beauty in that, in Danny DeVito's performance again, uh, when he's about to die and he comes out of the sewer and his nose is just streaming blood and his eyes are huge. And he Being just green. is, re- you know, enwrapped. The rage is just his only motivation before he dies and same with um michelle pfeiffer in her wish for revenge against max streck who attempted to kill her and but not just that it's, it's completely uh, belittling her when when she was selena kyle so that first 40 minutes and that last 40 minutes are some of tim burton's best work and the mm. fact that it's sandwiched between edward scissorhands and ed wood is quite appropriate like it could be a trifecta of his yeah. best stuff but he knows eventually he has to make a Batman movie. That's what he's been hired to do. He's got to get to it. So around minute 40, fine, I'll put all of Michael Keaton's stuff here. And that's where all the plot happens. And it's just, it's the dullest part of the movie. There's some good scenes in there um, when he interacts with Michelle Pfeiffer, for example, because they have a romance. But none of that is, is interesting at all. None of his stuff, his foiling the plot or the mayoral election, it's, that's just... Well, that's not really his plot. No, it's not really his plot. But, but the, the plot, I mean, the, the kind of, rather yeah. than the mood, the plot is all sandwiched into the middle 40 minutes, which is also where Michael Keaton is sandwiched. And that stuff, you can feel Tim Burton like, all right, come on, come on, you know, mm. you know oh God, 20 minutes, okay, I'm going to give you 20 minutes to do this plot, okay? And you can feel these rushing. So there are flaws there. The set is very beautiful, but because it's at a time when it's just sets, you can't expand it with like touches of mm. CG. You can tell it's just a set because the fact everything it's just in set dressing isn't yeah, it? Is they've gone in, into a warehouse exactly. and set dressed it, or they've gone everything into here. in Gotham is around this one little street, yeah. and everything in the Penguin's Lair is around that one little lair. And you mean around that one aquarium exactly. somewhere? Exactly. <laughs> um, they even has at one point they have this scene with all the penguins. He's like addressing the penguins, and they're all just in the seating that clearly is the seating that's used for like the audience. Yes, it is. Uh, when like you go to watch the penguins at the aquarium, I don't know which aquarium it was at, but it was definitely at an yes. aquarium. No, absolutely. Um, and so my main flaw is with that middle uh, forty minutes where it stops being a mood piece and starts being a plot because they have to get to it eventually. But the stuff where the mood <laughs> happens, it is some of Tim Burton's best work, and it's probably his most politically angry, the fact that he's talking about um, these kind of... This is what happens when a superhero... It was before The Boys, mm. before uh, any of these kind of ironic takes on superheroes that we have now. This is kind of a director addressing, at least as much as he can within the system he's been given. Like, this is what happens when people are actually... Their lives are messed up by a superhero being around. This is what happens... This kind of lifestyle is their lifestyle. Which is kind of opposite of what the Nolan Batman's almost style, where it's like, look what the rich person can do. Yes, exactly. And I never liked Tim Burton, sorry, sorry, uh, Christopher Nolan's super realistic take. Um, I feel like there should be some melodrama there. There should be some. What? And I, I, like, heard, I remember you saying that, like, I remember you couldn't wait for the second one. Oh, absolutely. You loved it. I mean, I was 18. Like, everybody was uh, kind of getting in, in on it. Actually, no, I was probably 
No, I, I think that film came out in 2008, so I would have been 18. So at the time, I was like, yes, Tim Burton, uh, this, is, this is it. Chris Nolan. Chris Nolan. Uh, but now I'm, I have soured on the super realistic take um, somewhat. And I'm sort of slightly agnostic, especially about the final two films. And I like the goth melodrama kind of draping over everything. And I think, the, I think this has Tim Burton's best scene in, which is the moment when Catwoman is born and she goes back to her apartment and she hits that answering machine message and she just goes absolutely bananas. And that's something that you can see. You can see the touches of Bride of Frankenstein, of Top Browning's Freaks. That, that's, it's, that's a kind of perfect mini play of it. And I think that's... The moments like that, those first and last 40 minutes where the mood all is, is why I kind of love it quite as much as I do. It's the bummer Christmas film. That when I'm sick of joy, I want to see mood. And this is my mood. <laughs> wow. Interesting. I have to... I, I, so a couple of bits, that I, other bits I've thought about since that I liked about it is that it actually does have a bit of a throwback to the Adam West stuff as well. There's a scene when... I can't remember who it is who hands him the note. It's either one of the penguins or... No, the monkey hands him a note from Batman, and, it, and which also kind of leads into this is how little um, Tim Burton cares about Batman because you just can't be bothered if everyone scream for this scene. <laughs> Here, yeah, it just opens... He opens a bit of paper and pulls it out, and, he, and Batman's foiled his plot. And instead of showing Batman foiling his plot, it just says children can't attend sorry batman or something like that and yeah. that's a very like you could just see in an adam west one like i don't know a butler coming into the joker and pulling the thing up and there being a bomb in it and it's saying or being an envelope and it's saying bomb and then the envelope exploding or something like that it certainly know. isn't afraid of camp no it definitely is over the top um and i quite like that i think that's quite good fun i kind of i don't know it does feel i still think where the hyperrealism's got a place is this kind of, to me, felt quite... And I don't actually don't think Batman Begins is that hyperrealistic. I think I quite like I the... I think that's the best. Too. That's my favourite of the three, yeah. because of that reason. I think that blends it enough. I think this, at, the, at times, does feel a bit of a mess, and it does feel like, well, why is he going round in a giant rubber duck? <laughs> why has that rubber duck got wheels with, like, a weird, like... Vroom, 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 <laughs> like a Mario sounds. Kart. Yeah, like, <laughs> like you could just sped it up, like... Doom, I think it actually was sped up because it's so slow. But and then just the way I don't know, it was it, it did it did take me out of it at times, and I don't really think I cared about any of the characters, which is kind of I feel when you're saying oh it's this mood piece and you're meant to really care about these villains and feel sorry for them and stuff, and I kind of feel like I don't because it takes me out of it too much. I think even Catwoman, she's probably the most. She's okay. the one that I can see like the most humanity in and kind of understand the character. And I think Michelle Pfeiffer is by far the... I think it's her best performance. Yeah, I do. I think she's actually very good in it. Um, Michael Keaton's fine when he's on screen. Like, I actually always thought that Michael Keaton's pretty good Batman. There's a sarcastic quality to his yeah. Batman, which I like. I think it works for Bruce. Yeah. Um, and... Yeah, and Danny DeVito, I mean, I, again, I don't know what the direction Danny DeVito has been. If it's literally, can you be the grossest, most disgusting thing you've ever been in your life, even more than Frank from Always Sunny, then, I mean, he's ticked that box really well. I mean, I don't <laughs> understand what the costume he's wearing is. I don't understand where all this green's coming from. Um, yeah, I suppose. So I suppose if actually what you want is a penguin that really looks and acts like a penguin, he did a very good job at it. 
but I do. I, I, I like the. I mean, I'm not. I'm not going to say I, I don't like the film. I've always liked the film. I've always thought it's quite good fun and it's ridiculous and it's silly. But I think if I have to to actually review it as a movie reviewer, I would say it's incredibly deeply flawed and a massive mess. Mm-hmm. And I think no, that, that's fair. That's, that, that, that's fair. I, I think I just was won over more by um, Tim Burton's attempts at. Uh, <laughs> The, the melodrama that he's spinning yeah. is what I'm buying. And I know that for all, as much as I want some films to be cult films, like I mentioned Speed Racer, which is a cult film only to me and, and no one else. This, uh, so it recently had its 30-year anniversary. And when it did, there were articles in The Guardian, in The Times, of people talking about it. And one of the things they mentioned is that at a, when superhero movies are often chased, this is very sexual. Mm. When they're often bloodless, this is very violent, and you know streams of blood green. and green. And but even when he bites that guy's nose, oh yeah, that's bloody. Um, it it just it goes for it, and yeah. it, it's a big swing. And I think this is you mentioned before, like you like these films that are um, uh, the directors attempting to kind of burst away from the studio and make a mess, but only a mess that's personal to him. And I say, yeah, I do because I like seeing someone take a big swing even if the ball doesn't get hit yeah and next week we're going to be listening to callum's 10 out of 10 review of tideland tales tideland tales isn't that the one that uh richard kelly did his second movie oh southland tales southland tales uh, yeah. well in... <laughs> <laughs> even that is too even bad that, for yeah. <laughs> even that's that's too incoherent even for me uh... like you know there'll be 10 out of 10s for you know uh, Speed Racer, um, The Last Jedi, uh, Batman Returns, and won't be for Tide. Uh, you've got me saying it. Uh, Southland Tales. <laughs> Isn't Tideland? Tideland um, is the Terry Gilliam. Terry Gilliam film with. Um, with I think that's yeah, his incoherent personal mess of a film. Yeah, but it's quite. A lot of people really rate it. I quite like it. Um, yeah. It is weird though. Mm-hmm. That, <laughs> I like the fact that I, I um, they were talking about it on someone's podcast the other day talking about it with um uh what's his name big lebowski oh uh, jeff bridges with jeff bridges jeff bridges like it was the weirdest film i ever had to do because i just played a dead guy for the whole <laughs> movie um but yeah um but i guess uh, maybe i should summarize this film before we get too far <laughs> yeah, well, off quite so no, well not summarize Come, give us your give us something you're out of 10 okay so out of 10 i think i will give this because it's a personal thing and i understand there are flaws in it but I will give it a 9 out of 10. Wow. I think there's un, it's understandable why this film has the cult fan base that the first Batman film, though it's more successful, you know, people don't talk about that film anymore. They don't talk about uh, the first Tim Burton Batman film, where th- as this gets the big 30-year anniversary and every Halloween there's um, uh, people dressing up like Catwoman. It, you know, it's become the quintessential look for Catwoman. Mm-hmm. There, it it hits people in it for the people that it hits it hits them and for me i am one of those people and i think for that kind of personal angst that the film is spinning i'm buying it and uh yeah so nine out of ten for me for this one i kind of so i completely understand why it's become a cult movie it's definitely got all the hallmarks of a cult movie i also think people and, and i'm with them kind of miss the the Tim Burton Batmans and I think it's a bit of a shame that he didn't do three and four. Yeah. Um I think obviously well, I don't, don't want to be mean about Joel Schumacher because he's <laughs> dead, but 
I don't like those two movies in any way. Val Kilmer was miscast, and um, and George Clooney was miscast as much as I love George, and they're just messes. And I don't think they they tried to do the camp, but without the dark. Um, and I won't say Tim Burton got the balance right, but he got the balance. Oh, actually, in fairness, in Batman, I think he did get the balance right. But um, but yeah, in Batman Returns, he got it pretty close as well. Um, so it works on that level. There's some good acting in there. The sets are cool. And obviously, we have to think it is a 30-year-old movie, so you've got to give it a bit of a sure. bit of rope. But I'm going to give it a 7 out of 10, because I think that is think that's fair probably too. the correct film <laughs> scorey one. So between us, that is an 8 out of 10. So that's a, a should-watch stamp. Yes. Um, and then Callum, so what will you give uh, Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence? I think uh, for the reason of it being personal and uh, human and telling a very difficult story in a way that gets down to individual personage and shows you kind of the day-to-day lives. And for having that beautiful performance by David Bowie and the rest of the cast all doing probably some of their best work um, and for the musicians who are acting for the first time um, or for the very... in David Bowie's case, for the second or third time, it shows you just how sensitively they... Uh, take their musicianship and apply it to being an actor. I think it's an easy eight out of ten, even despite those. And they really are nitpicks. Those, despite those nitpicks, an eight out of ten. It's a very beautiful story. So I, I think it's got. A, I do think the editing really pulls it back a bit. I do think it's not an easy. Not that I think films should be easy to get into, but I don't think it's a necessarily an easy film and it doesn't feel say as smooth as something like the killing fields i mean the killing fields i would probably give 10 out of 10 like it's one of you know it's a top 50 movie one of my favorite movies kind of thing um but again i think for exactly all the reasons you've said um i think it is very well acted i think it is very human i think the scores are ama- the score's amazing i think there are touches of genius in there and again giving a little bit of rope for when how long ago it was made and the time it was made uh, i would probably also give it an eight out of ten interesting enough so that is another eight out of ten between us for that movie so both of these movies if you want a bit of an alternative christmas watch they've got the uh Callum and johnny seal of approval you'll have a very bad mood afterwards but you'll have a fun time yeah, well, I don't know if fun's the word, but <laughs> probably watching Batman more. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, and on that cheery note, have a Merry Christmas. Have a lovely Christmas. And goodbye from us. Bye. Don't do that. <laughs>